Good evening, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the ICA. Um, my name's Lloyd Davis. I'm the founder of the Tuttle Club, which is a, um, what is it? It's a, it's a, it's a, lots of people are here. Uh, it's a group of people who are interested in the social web, basically. We get together every week, and uh, we used to meet here at the ICA. We uh, currently meet at the uh, Centre for Creative Collaboration uh, up in King's Cross, where I'm social artist in residence. Um, I'm going to be chairing tonight. Um, there's a few things I want to say before we get into the meat of today. Um, one is mobile phones. Um, please feel free to keep your mobile phones on uh, in order to tweet or do whatever. Maybe you'll be live blogging or whatever you're going to do with them. But please do turn them to silence so that you're not disturbing everybody around you. Um, a few people are going to be live blogging, so you can see the results of that uh, as, it, as it comes up. Um, there is a phosphorus site, cloudculture.phosphorus.com, um, to which we will be posting bits of content. But if you are creating content uh, and you want to uh, post that directly there, uh, you can do that by sending me an email. If you send me an email to lloyd.davis plus cloudculture at gmail.com, it'll get forwarded onto the blog and uh, it'll get published. If you didn't get that, come and see me afterwards and, and I'll sort you out um, with how to con contribute. If you're tweeting, please do use the, the tag uh, hash cloudculture. Um, and just the thing about photography, um, for those of you who aren't taking photographs, there are lots of people who will be taking photographs. If you're not comfortable with your photographs being taken, because it will probably end up on the internet, um, then do, do feel free to let the person know who's taken the photograph that you're not really that cool about it. Uh, and I'm sure that all those people, <laughs> all those people will be very pleased to, um, to, uh, to let you go about your business. Uh, I think that's <coughs> all in terms of just getting you set up. Um, we've got four great speakers tonight all talking about, um, about cloud culture, about what happens to culture in the era of cloud computing. Uh, just to let you know in terms of the shape of the evening, we're going to have contributions from the four people you see over to my left. Uh, just so that you know in advance from this end, it's Charlie Ledbetter, Catherine Fieschi, Paul Hilder and Esther Eshel. So um, they're going to be they're going to be coming up and, and speaking. Then we're going to have we've got about half an hour space for uh, what says on the program Q and A, but I don't want it to be Q and A. I want it to be conversation. Really, uh, uh, you're quite welcome to say whatever you like. Uh, and then we're going to go upstairs, and there'll be nibbles and drinks and some more focused conversation. But that's enough from me. Catherine's going to introduce everything, so you're going to just come on, aren't you? Sorry. I am going to come on. I'll sit down. Thank you. Thanks, Lloyd. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming. I, I really can't see. I'm being blinded by the sun um, here, but um, I trust there's, there's many of you. I see newcomers. Um, I'm Catherine Fieschi, and I'm the director of CloudPoint. And I thought that before handing over to Charlie, um, I tell you a little bit about um, I'll, I'll set the, the context a little uh, about, about this publication. Um, we started talking about this project um, at the British Council 
kind of counterpoint a few months ago, which is we really wanted to look at the shape of cultural relations in the 21st century. This is what, um, what we were interested in exploring. And um, to start talking about the shape of cultural relations in the 21st century, then we needed to take into account um, developments, uh, particularly uh, developments such as cloud computing, Web 2.0, and everything that affects um, our relationship to, to one another um, here at, uh, in, 2000 and in 2010. And when we started talking about this, um, this project, everybody said it was a great idea, but why is the British Council interested in cloud computing? It doesn't seem like it's its natural area. And actually, my answer to that was, well, we're not interested in cloud computing, actually. What we're interested in is the impact of cloud computing. We're interested in, in cloud culture, as, as Charlie uh, named it, as usual, um, so well. What we're interested in really is the, is the impact and promise of developments such as cloud computing on culture and on, on cultural relations. So to some extent, my, my first answer is that this is actually an absolutely natural area for, for the British Council to be exploring. It's absolutely a, a natural area of interest for us. If cloud computing fundamentally changes how we store information, how we store data, including cultural artifacts, books, films, uh, documentary films, then by definition it's going to change how we relate to them, how we relate to these cultural artifacts and, and all this information and, and data. Uh, and it's going to change the kinds of relationships that, that we build through them. Those relationships through culture are exactly what the British Council does. That's, that's our business, relating to other people across the world through culture. If those relationships are going to be fundamentally changed uh, by such developments, then we feel that we need to, to take a look at them. But the fact is that this is also an acknowledgement on our part that, that cloud computing and, and cloud culture entail a real step change, um, a real revolution uh, about how we think about ourselves and how we think uh, about, about culture and about cultural relations. And this is where CounterPoint's role comes in. In, in a sense, we are the, the, the part of the British Council that is particularly reflective about what it is that the British Council does and how it is that the British Council works. So I suppose when I say that there's a step change, there's, it's worth explaining what kind of step change we're talking about, what kind of revolution we're talking about. And the first, first kind of revolution, the first kind of major change is the change that, that impacts on our work. Um, the cloud computing and, and also the reality uh, of, uh, of, of how we store information, of how we access software, who accesses information um, and data and culture, all of this enables us to work perhaps more effectively um, in certain parts of the world um, that are more difficult of access, that are perhaps uh, more closed, that are perhaps more, more tense, and where, uh, where our work is, is more difficult due to a number of reasons. And that's not being utopian about it, um, in the sense that we also know um, that developments such as the ones that, that we've been hearing about um, in terms of Google's place in China, for example, such developments also, first of all, highlight um, all sorts of, of difficulties of access, but also they highlight the fact that sometimes um, they make our work also more challenging, more difficult in, in certain places. I think it's also an important step change for us because the kinds of transformations that we're talking about, the sort of uh, access 
the numbers that we're talking about are exponential. And because they're exponential, they're quite transformative. It means uh, more people who have access to more cultures, more networks. This for us is also a challenge, um, figuring out how we support networks across the world, um, how, we, how we help people to make the most of them without necessarily uh, encroaching um, or, or shaping them more than, than they might wish. So these new networks, these new audiences, are the ones that we really want to be aware of. But aside from the, from the transformations that, that, this, uh, that, that these uh, developments entail for our work, um, I think they also, perhaps even more importantly, entail real transformation about um, how we think of culture, how we think of, of cultural relations, how we think about what constitutes heritage, for example, um, how we curate culture in an age where so many more people could have access and can have access to it. So many more people can also play with it, dismember it, give it new meaning, reshape it. Um, this means that who curates, how we curate, how we preserve uh, culture, which has often been um, you know, the, the role of institutions and organizations such as ours, that is fundamentally shifting, that we need to share this, this role. Um, and, and to share it with many more people, many more organizations um, than, than we have in, in the past. It means to some extent also that um, we need to acknowledge the fact that such developments impact on how, on our memory, on our relationship to time, on what will from now on get preserved and what will, what will be lost. I think there's a, a different relationship to what is ephemeral and what does remain. And I think in, in cultural terms, this is a, this is a real revolution that, um, that we're very uh, keen to, to encourage, to ask questions about uh, and to open up a, a debate about. I think in conclusion, before I, I, I hand over to Charlie, the important thing for us, I think, is that what we were interested in here, as the title uh, suggests, is the future of global cultural relations. And what we mean by global cultural relations here is, uh, to some extent, it's a signal um, that suggests that we are thinking of relating culturally in new ways. And we are thinking of the promise and the challenges that something like cloud computing and, and cloud culture offers. To some extent, it's a real transformation um, of our role. It is no longer um, about broadcasting. It is no longer simply about public diplomacy or cultural diplomacy, it is about a very different way of relating to others, much more of a two-way conversation, and in fact, a million-way conversation, a myriad-way conversation. And I think that, to some extent, those conversations and the way that they're being transformed are very much at the heart of what we do. And therefore, this is why we felt it absolutely appropriate to open up, to open up this debate. Now, I've, I've stressed the promises, I've mentioned the challenges, um, I'm not utopian uh, or overly optimistic about the ease with which we make the most um, of, this, of this fundamental transformation. But I am actually um, incredibly, uh, if you like, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath uh, for us to make the most of it. And I think we're incredibly well placed to do so. And if not, I think I'll hand it over. Good evening. Um, thank you, first of all, to Catherine and to Nick and all the other people at the British Council for giving me the opportunity to think about this and write this 
and not least of time. Uh, when Catherine said they thought thinking they started thinking about it a few months ago, what she was sort of subtly saying, I think, has taken much longer than she was expecting. Uh, and secondly, to thank Lloyd for, I mean, I speak at a lot of conferences, and that is the first fully socially media compliant introduction to a conference I have ever heard. Um, so that set a kind of new standard. Um, I just, just quickly, I know this probably isn't a kind of representative sample, but let's just give it a go anyway. Who here would say, broadly speaking, they are optimistic about the future as regards the web and society? Oh, four, ooh, about 60%. Who here is anxious and perhaps slightly pessimistic about it? About ten percent. Who who is anxious and pessimistic? <laughs> who here has got the slightest idea what's going on? Um, <laughs> that is the real question. And so it was because of that question that I um, decided to try and write this. And it's great to be here actually at the ICA. Um, echo because I actually I was first ever in this room, this will age me, in 1983 for a conference about cable television and how cable was going <laughs> to revolutionize everything. But then even better than that, um, my fondest memory is just a few months later hearing Raymond Williams speak about culture in the ICA cinema. Can you imagine hearing Raymond Williams in person speak about culture? And the only thing I can remember from that entire talk, however, is a phrase that he used, which was to describe the clash, as he describes it, of two entirely false armies marching across the stage. And that came to mind because it seems to me that if you look at most of our cultural and creative industries, um, it's basically a kind of daily civil war in which there are constant skirmishes new weapons being introduced the whole time, tablets, e-books, search engines, whatever. And basically it's kind of civil war in a failed state because everyone is fighting everyone else. And alliances are shifting the whole time. Macmillan is fighting with Amazon, Amazon is fighting with Apple, Apple is fighting with um, <coughs> kind of music publishers, Google is fighting with Murdoch, he's fighting with the Telegraph, but Jesus is also fighting. I mean, it's just a war of all against all. And in the fog of war, very, very difficult to work out what is going on. So this report is simply an attempt to try and give a snapshot of what might be going on. And what might be going on is, firstly, that we are moving, I think, to a different kind of internet. Um, the internet that many of us grew up with, which was a way to connect distinct and separate computers through a sort of network, is, I think, giving way to something where we're all going to be sharing clouds of data and software into which we put stuff, whether it's in a Facebook cloud or a Twitter cloud, and we'll pull stuff down. But this sort of cloud will hover above us. And clouds, if you just think about clouds in the sky, clouds, I think, are enormously benign and often very beautiful, but also potentially quite threatening. And so I think one of the implications of the cloud is this different sort of metaphor, different way of seeing our relationship with all that information, both full of possibility but also quite threatening. The cloud, that shift, has a huge implication for culture and creativity. Very crudely, if culture is the store of meanings that we have available to make sense of our lives and our world, and if those meanings are embedded in pictures and films and stories and what have you, 
And if creativity is our ability to add to that, change it, amend it, then the stage is set, it seems to me, for a new direction of culture. Um, we'll have more culture available in digital form more easily, more accessible to more people who will have more tools to add to it, share, share it, amend it, and so on and so forth. And so we'll have this sort of billowing of all sorts of forms of cultural expression in all sorts of ways, more democratic, more broadly, more commercial, but also much richer in many kinds of ways. Anyone who's involved in culture will know that if you make a resource, a cultural resource available in new ways, people will find meaning in it that other people didn't see. So Culture 24, uh, Michigan University, all the evidence is that if you make resources available more openly, people in a process a bit like open source software will find in it more eyes will see more meaning and generate more value from it. And so uh, this could also potentially change the way that we relate to one another through culture internationally. That story has, in the last century, of course, been hugely dominated by basically a north-south trade in culture uh, in which the industrial era means of production and culture have been dominated in small parts of the north. There are exceptions to that, huge film industries in Nigeria and Bollywood and bits of music, but by and large the story is that this is dominated by the north and the west. The cloud, the, the spread of the ability to contribute, share and create in this kind of way creates the possibility at least of some kind of different story of global culture which is a way to connect different and diverse things without removing their difference without reducing them to some homogeneity and without sort of collapsing everything into a sort of melange of postmodernism, but finding a way to create connections between diverse things. And you can see the possibility of this everywhere. Um, you can see it in uh, the huge advances being made in science. Science is now ever more going to be an international, collaborative, interdisciplinary, activity where the focal point will not be the physical lab, it will be the network and the cloud as much as anything. Hugely amplifying scientific creativity. You can see it in open source software communities which in many ways are the harbingers of what this collaborative creativity might mean. You can see it in Wikipedia, you can see it in a vast pool organization which has this amazing leverage that many of these things have. 20 people, 4 million members. So you can see it everywhere, and you can see it remarkably in Google's amazing effort, initiative, gamble, to digitize huge numbers, millions of books uh, with the help of libraries, uh, research libraries who hold public domain works. The scandal that Google Books is based on is the orphaning of most of our culture by traditional copyright. Most of our culture actually lies dormant. Uh, we can't access it commercially, but the commercial rights holders won't make it available. And to Google's credit, it kind of waded into this and just said, well, we'll digitize it and we'll make it available and do something remarkable, create a world digital library of books. But in the very act of doing that, Google uh, has highlighted many of the risks and the dangers that people see, the threat as well as the promise of that kind of power. And so as the cloud has become 
and the web has become ever more pervasive, more powerful, more disruptive, but has this huge potential reach, so efforts to control it will grow. And I just want to highlight and end by highlighting four that we really need to confront and think about if we are to have any hope of realizing the possibilities of the open cloud, the cloud that could tie together disparate interests and allow collaborative creativity in new ways. The first is governments. Governments have never, ever really liked the net. They've, they feel deeply uncomfortable with it. Uh, deeply uncomfortable because they worry about security, about decency, but mostly because it's so unruly. Uh, and it's unruly and it doesn't fit with their organizations, but it also doesn't fit with politics, the way that politics is conducted. And so the biggest danger, it seems to me, to the open web is not in authoritarian regimes in the Far East. The biggest danger is amongst liberal democratic governments who fail to live up to the standards of the open web. And the biggest danger is that governments will find ways to persuade us that it's a good idea that the net should be brought under control in ways that will make their jobs easier but actually not do very much for us. And thus you see these big arguments here and in Australia about efforts to do that. I'm completely unconvinced that the government here needs to take special rights over copyright law so they can amend it almost ad lib. Uh, that seems to me a huge step backwards. Equally, what we do need is innovative public funding for cultural institutions like the British Library and others to exploit this new possible domain. The BBC, I think, is critical to this world, and we need new kinds of public global goods, as the science example shows. So all these efforts to create open data and what have you, absolutely critical. So there's a big battle, it seems to me, over governments. The second big battle is over the sort of rearguard action being staged by old media and old culture, um, where these business models increasingly um, uh, running out of steam, exhausted, desperate in some ways, um, and uh, trying to put up um, copyright restrictions, extending copyright, uh, making it more, uh, making it tighter. Uh, and that will ensnare the cloud. If we do that, if we allow that to happen, it will ensnare the possibilities of uh, creative collaboration. So we need to have, it seems to me, a kind of industrial policy in this country, at least, that will encourage new business models in media and culture that aren't being created at the moment. We need to resist efforts to extend and tighten copyright. We need to reverse the polarity of copyright to make it um, that make the assumption that knowledge will be shared if there's no good reason for it after a reasonable length of time, and essentially that knowledge should be open. So there's a big battle there. But the battle over old media and old culture and these older forms of organization have distracted attention from the fact that the people I call cloud capitalists are busy organizing the landscape of the future without us even noticing it. We're so sort of... Um, uh, interested in the battle of the Murdoch Empire to defend itself, that we've missed the fact that these companies are starting to organize the landscape that we will arrive in in due course. Now, often these companies, it seems to me, act in uh, with good intentions. Sometimes I don't think Facebook, Twitter might be examples. They're quite sure what they're doing. And sometimes it's all too clear, and I think they've got extremely cynical commercial motives. But basically, there are real issues about who controls the cloud. 
Whose choice is it on what terms what goes into a public cloud of data? What books remain in the cloud or out? And whose terms is it that you get access to them? There are issues about privacy and security which become really critical when you think from the perspective of government, would I prefer the net to be organized by some corporation or some unruly group of malcontents who I don't know how to reach? No, I'd much prefer a corporation. I could deal with them. So the alliance between government and cloud operators is one that's very troubling. And the final thing is that it just leads to some really stupid outcomes. Um, because the cloud will be organized increasingly not by people but by algorithms which will mine it for data and connections and miss the social context. So uh, Facebook recently uh, recommended I reconnect with my wife who I sleep with every night. Um, because obviously it has kind of twigged that I wasn't kind of connecting with her on Facebook. Amazon recently recommended I buy my own book which was a kind of pleasing outcome. Um, but this is the kind of... now. The, that, those are clumsy, and it's good that they're clumsy because you spot them, but in a way you worry about the non-clumsy algorithms that might be suggesting or shaping or creating what behavioral economists call choice architectures, which shape <coughs> your choices without even you realizing they do. So I think there are huge issues here about competition, regulation, uh, interoperability, and also the possibility that alongside the rise of these corporations, we should be doing what actually the Google Book Settlement does, creating global social enterprises, global social undertakings that might look after global culture that's shared. There's a huge opportunity there. And finally and fourthly, um, the biggest challenge to all of this, this story of possibility, of course, is just the deep inequality in access and capability that um, actually, uh, although uh, mobile phones in particular are spreading fast to change access to this. It's still a deeply unequal world. And by the time consumers in Africa get their mobile phones and get access to it, much of this landscape will have been organized by protocols written probably in California. So the issues of inequality don't go away. So just to conclude, I am still full of hope and optimism at the potential of the web. I'm still daily inspired by its ability to connect people, to share knowledge, to allow new forms of organization to underpin democracy. I think there's still lots of people who are excited and doing really powerful things, and I don't think it's wrong, I don't think it's right to write off the possibility that some of those might be in large commercial undertakings or even governments. But the time when we could, in a sense, just hope that this was going to happen that the technology itself would somehow have some inbuilt code or logic that would promote collaborative creativity, democracy, and the like, that's gone. And so the next decade, for me, will all be about a fight, really, a fight to struggle over control of the Internet. And in that fight, we need to stand up. We need to say very clearly <coughs> what it is that we are standing and fighting for. Charlie. Um, just uh, for those of you who aren't on Twitter at the moment, uh, just a couple of things that are coming coming through, you, uh, apart from the kind of endless quotation of and requotation of everything that has been said already that makes Twitter so fascinating. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased to see Adam Timworth saying, uh, finding the idea of being explicit cloud culture interesting, sort of high-level thinking about how to possibly change my life. Uh, and Carrie, thank you for suggesting that Adriana should be here to chime some of this thinking. Um, she should. I'm sure we invited her. Um, I'm going to introduce you now to Paul Hilder uh, from Avaz. Uh, Charlie spoke very briefly about what they do. Um, for me, one of the great, great things about the way that the web is developing and, uh, and where we're going is that it allows us to organize ourselves in a different way. It allows us to organize ourselves to get things done. Uh, and um, Paul is going to, I hope, talk about that in the context of the cloud. Thank you. Do as I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's great to be here um, and to have the opportunity to respond to Charlie. Uh, it, it's really an interesting piece of work and the most interesting thing that I've read in a while actually. Charlie's always had a way of picking the, uh, the ideal metaphor or the story or the mot juste um, and I think um, this cloud capitalist thing has just got me thinking about whether I'm a cloud socialist or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think cloud culture is uh, both a gorgeous and a well-attuned uh, metaphor for the situation we find ourselves in. Um, of it and the threat and the beauty at the same time. I think it takes a while to work out how to trim your sails in a cloud, um, how to respond, how to share. Organizations are, most organizations I think are still not good at it and I think uh, most individuals, most of us uh, still find it tricky. We're still learning every day, um, which is good actually. It's a good way to, way to live. I guess I've been asked to, to speak here for two reasons. Firstly, because Avaz does some of this stuff ourselves. Charlie's mentioned this in the publication, and partly because we're interested in the politics uh, of this stuff. Um, when I say we, I'm talking about uh, us as a group of 20-odd organizers, uh, but more importantly, I'm talking about the four million uh, members of Avaz, and I count myself as one of those uh, two, uh, who are coming together through the internet to try and make change happen you know, across a whole range of uh, issues and agendas. Now, one of the things that we do uh, is we try and um, remove barriers to clouds uh, in some places in the world. Uh, for instance, our members have donated to fund um, uh, technologies and tools which uh, assist in the circumvention of government censorship and surveillance in places like Iran. Um, uh, but it's really a mu much more than that. It's also about the way in which we operate. Um, uh, and you know, one example of that is the way in which we make decisions about what it is we're going to cam campaign together um, on. Uh, you know, and very often that starts with an email from a member. I'm thinking of a campaign we've got underway at the moment where we got some emails um, about a month ago from a uh, gay activist in Uganda um, and also from an Anglican priest almost simultaneously in Uganda, people who didn't know each other. Who were talking about the uh, the law which was being brought forward there, um, making homosexuality basically illegal, potentially punishable by death. Um, you know, and what we go, what we do when we get emails like that, we go away, we research the issue um, as organisers, talk to people who know about it, know what the moments are going to be, what the campaigning angles are going to be. And we bring it back to members, we poll them, um, we use surveys quite a lot. Um, uh, and then, very interestingly, on this issue, we found 90-plus percent support for the angle that we had, even in Africa, um, uh, where you might think that there would be cultural problems. Um, it's very interesting how you find that some, some things are really very universal, uh, if you find the right way of talking about them. 
you know, and then we run campaigns. And it's you know, if 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 people don't participate in in a campaign the way we framed it, then we can't go back and change it. Um, so that it works for the cloud. Uh, as organizers, we're constantly trying to understand the cloud. We're, we're trying to understand what it wants to do. We're trying to support it. We're trying to facilitate it, give it the best opportunities. Um, we're looking for network effects in that. We're looking for things like vi virality. And it's a very interesting, uh, it's a bit like sailing or, or being, being in the air in, a, in an airplane. Something else we try and do is open source organizing. Uh, which is slightly different. It's, it happens outside our immediate network. It's about offering out ideas which other people, other organizations can then pick up on. We did this in, around the, uh, the global climate change movement last year uh, on a number of occasions. One <coughs> September 21st when we um, offered out this idea of everybody doing flash mobs just before a UN, UN summit. And people just ran with it and did the most amazing creative stuff. And then seeing that coming back in through a collaborative process of sharing videos and images um, you know, on, on that, that, that night was an extraordinary uh, experience. It moved many of the people who saw that stream of images to tears, actually. Uh, and then that happened again on October the 24th with an organization called 350. And then on December the 12th, when we had a set of vigils around the world, uh, which the whole uh, climate movement was involved in, climaxing with something with Desmond Tutu in, in Copenhagen itself. Uh, at which images from around the world were shared. And one of the interesting things about that was that you know, big organizations were an important part of it. But actually, it, it gave extraordinarily, it, it was extraordinarily empowering to just local networks, local groups, people who uh, had their own little networks in, in particular places. Uh, it just gave them a way of doing what needed to be done. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm very keen on Charlie's open cloud uh, Declaration, manifesto, what's it called? Declaration. <laughs> declaration. Um, uh, it sort of reminds me of John Perry Barlow's Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, except that that was a bit silly. Um, <laughs> and this seems to be much more uh, grounded in both a, a realistic understanding of where we are now and, and a realistic understanding of where we might go next. There's more... I was going to say Gramsci, but actually Raymond Williams is probably a better <laughs> analogy and, and, and less uh, uh, silly cyber libertarianism in it, um, because I think Charlie understands how power and technology shape culture and vice versa. Um, uh, I think that what he's talking about is not exactly a, um, a campaign, but it might be a sort of a, a movement. It's, it's about uh, an overlapping set of conversations and campaigns which we need to get in involved in, um, which are about the overall direction of our, of our society and our culture. And that's partly about things that people like us and the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Amnesty uh, do and um, people like the ICA. Um, in some ways as well, I think it's importantly about what Google and other uh, corporations do and about what governments do. I, I think what Google did on China uh, is a very interesting uh, act which shouldn't be, shouldn't be treated uh, uh, cynically. Um, I think, in general, um, you know, power shapes the way in which uh, we live our lives and, and experience culture, and uh, it needs to be held accountable, and it needs to be changed when it goes wrong. Um, but it is possible for these new power centers to behave accountably and, and responsibly. And I have to say, you know, if Google becomes genuinely and obviously evil, uh, I don't think its cloud will cohere for very long. Um, uh, so I think there's a whole range of things that we... Uh, need to be working on and that people are working on and I see a, a sort of coalesc coalescence around. Uh, Charlie talks about them uh, in the pamphlet. It's, it's the open access to information, the censorship stuff, it's 
It's about progressive frameworks about copyright and sharing. Bill Thompson is in the audience who I worked with on a big debate around uh, copyright some time ago, and I really do think that there's a way of striking a better balance there. It is about striking a balance, but a better balance. It's about cultural relations, and, and this idea, which I, I was very struck by, of, of sort of more uh, open, more reciprocal, more rhizomatic, you might even say, uh, forms of cultural relations, uh, which are based on mutual respect. We did a video called Stop the Clash of Civilizations, which was about this. Uh, you know, it, it, and, and it's about um, you know, getting, getting government to open up more, and it's about getting some of these corporate actors to, to open up more. Can Facebook really own my social graph? I, I don't think it can. Um, so, and I think actually this is a very exciting time. It's a troubling time, but it's an exciting time. We've, we've got these networks and hierarchies interpenetrating here, and it's true not just of Western society. If I think about Gaza and the times I've been there, Gaza is in many ways a cloud. China, I think, is probably a, a stratified kind of cloud today. Um, I think it's entirely possible for people to get stuck inside their clouds, and it can be a blinding experience. I, uh, a few days ago, was uh, happened to be in the co-pilot seat of a light plane flying through a cloud bank, and it was a very, very strange experience. <laughs> you lose, you lose all sense of where you are. Um, but I th think if you can get perspective um, uh, on your clouds and uh, understand their dynamics. Uh, uh, you know, then then you can learn how to ride the turbulence and how to how to change it. Um, uh, and I do actually think that this new space, this new way of interacting that we have, uh, takes the world's conversation potentially to a whole new level. It potentially it brings it alive. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Um, we wanted we didn't want this to be a complete geek out. And so we uh, we thought about who we could get who'd be who'd give us a more more of a kind of mainstream view of uh, contemporary culture. Where better to come than the Institute of Contemporary Arts and their artistic director, Echo Ocean. Thanks, Lloyd. Um, it's very interesting to hear what, what everyone's been saying. Equally, I guess I share um, uh, optimism, pessimism about where we're going. And I guess I think about that culturally, and I think about that also personally. But, um, uh, you know, it seems to me uh, sort of fascinating, uh, very exciting to live in a time of uh, simultaneous access to huge, amount ex to huge amounts of exchangeable information and images and sounds. And, you know, a few years ago, we used to call something like that, we used to call techniques of drawing down that kind of information sampling. And now that feels such an antique term, feels such an analogue, one-channel term <laughs> for what... Um, what takes place now, because actually the difference now is that we all exist in a perpetual present, and uh, you know obviously we, we can raise questions about um, what that does to originality of music or films or so on and so on. But I think uh, one of the interesting parts, one of the optimistic parts about uh, that kind of cultural promiscuity that we are all um, party to is that it allows for a constant critique of known forms and traditions. So Paul uh, used a uh, term a moment ago about networks and hierarchies, and the interconnection between those two things I think becomes very interesting. You know, in, in purely uh, visual art terms, it reminds me, there's a school of, uh, of visual art called institutional critique, 
which is all about artists uh, like Hans Hacker in the 70s and various artists like Fred Wilson going into galleries and actually asking very searching questions about the makeup of, uh, of the work on display in there, but also about what happens behind the scenes, about who the trustees are, about where the money comes from, about all these connections, about the networks and the hierarchies that exist inside those institutional spaces themselves. And it's that kind of bringing together of those things that I think becomes very exciting. Uh, I think the cloud and the, the information that, act that becomes accessed that way allows us to ask, ask uh, relevant and pertinent questions about the um, power structures that exist around us. Um, got a phone call today. Um, someone was asking me for a quote from a magazine, and their, their, their line was, our gallery is the new cathedrals. <laughs> so, you know, it's a point. Uh, my, th my thing is that actually galleries should be the site of, should be the new site of dissent and of sacrilege. They should be the places where serious questions are asked, again, about the world around us. And it seems to me, again, that, that, that we have an opportunity to ask questions right now. Um, that's, the, that's the good side, in that we can all be better informed. We can all inform ourselves and use that information to spread thoughts. Um, obviously, the downside of that is that we can also use that information to spread uh, unthoughts, half-truths, rumours, conspiracies, and... Um, and that has a sort of personal effect because to, to some extent, you know, we're all denizens of the clouds right now. We're all citizens of a cloud society. Some of us choose to be in that place. Like I think of um, early examples of life casting, people like Justin Can in the, in the, in the 1990s who, um, you know, who filmed and archived every aspect of their lives. But again, that was then. Right now, in a way, we're all part of that. Uh, I think for... I'd probably speak for most of us in that there are images of us that exist online, there are things that are written about us that exist online, and what we, what we find ourselves in is this new, uh, interesting, potentially disturbing blurring of our private and public selves. Uh, so things are written about us, some of, it, some of which is true, some of which is fantasy, some of which is defamatory, um, and none of it disappears. Mm. You know, we're all dogged by the long tail, uh, by this collective cloud memory that, uh, that exists around us. And what I'm specifically interested, in, I guess, about that is who owns that? Who owns that version of ourselves that exists out there or up there? Um, uh, you know, that version of ourselves that's not quite true or accurate. Um, you know, because there's an odd mix of things. There's an odd mutability and simultaneous fixity to uh, information that exists online. If we see something imprinted on paper, we tend to think it's accurate. We do question stuff that exists online, but at the same time, it doesn't really go away. At the same time, it has this weird fluidity and permanence all of its own. And that's the cloud condition. That's how we live right now. And um, uh, we, we all become, in a way, um, we all end up with these meta versions of ourselves that are owned by the cloud, or owned by the crowd, that aren't quite us, but have our name to them and have our face to them. Um, and you know, that's the individual version of all of the kind of um, slightly knotted and tangled online conspiracy theories and, and, and sort of um, ground level up movements that start online. It's very easy to tell all kinds of stories about us personally or about groups or societies, organizations. Um, uh, you know, one could get paranoid about that. I think, just to finish, that the interesting thing here is what culturally comes out of that tangling, that information and misinformation that, uh, that we're all party to. Um, so there's a book that's coming out in March, I think, very interesting book called, uh, by, by a writer called David Shields. 
called Reality Hunger, which is the first book I found that, that, that begins to take any of this on board. Uh, Reality of Hunger is, um, is a manifesto which calls for a new understanding of truthiness. And it's a book that's made up entirely, or almost entirely, actually not entirely, but mostly of, uh, of appropriations from other writers. It's a book just uh, that lists uh, one quote after another and some new thoughts and argues that, um, that there are no rules around fiction or non-fiction, that all forms of culture right now are about appropriation and about borrowing and about memory, that memoir, TV, film, performance, art, hip-hop, poetry, all of these things right now are prey and party to the same impulses or the most exciting work in that respect is, you know, think about something like The Wire, which is half true, half false, but wholly original. Um, and so, the, 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 you know, the final question for me is, uh, in reference to this is, you know, what is the culture under the cloud? What will we come to make? And, you know, the truth is there'll be many things that'll be dark, will be heavy and scary and intense, and sometimes will also create beautiful new forms of work. That work will be original, but it will also be derivative and, uh, and uh, quoting from other sources. But the main thing, I hope, is that that culture uh, that we end up creating has more individual participants in it, more voices, more questions that are being asked about who we are and about how we live. Thank you. Thank you, thank you everybody. Great stuff. So we're gonna, um, we've got some time now to have a bit of Q&A and, and conversation in here. Um, I, uh, I asked a minute ago on Twitter for any questions. Um, the, the, the Bill Thompson has leapt in immediately, funnily enough. Where are you, Bill? Yeah. You <laughs> Why don't you say your question out loud? <laughs> <laughs> Um, f first of all, just to in, ter in terms of getting, uh, yeah, I will, I will ask this. Uh, just to let you know, first of all, um, in order to contribute, if you could put your hand up and wait for the mic and introduce yourself, because and that the reason for that is that we are recording all of the proceedings that are going through the sound desk, uh, and that will be published as a podcast. So if you want your dulcet tones to be heard all over the internet, then you need to wait for the mic. Um, and also, of course, everybody else here. But what Bill asked was, aren't we indulging in particularism in treating the cloud as a major change when the network is the real change agent? Anyone want to pick that one up, Charlie? That well, um, no, I, 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 I take your point, and there are people who argue that the cloud is a kind of network-centric logic. Um, I think there's a there's a difference which we, uh, and it may be evolutionary, but it's still a difference between this kind of image of a network of separate things where there's some degree of control over what is in those things, our computers, and something that we're kind of contributing to, which is hovering above us, which is really contr a controlled space provided by someone else into which we're dropping things and pulling them out. And that's a different way of understanding our relationship with that information and the other people who might share that space, which is different from a sort of peer-to-peer -peer network kind of thing. Um, now, the practical impact of that may not be as great or be the same, but if you imagine these clouds, they're, they're um, being trawled by algorithms and they're being stored by people and uh, they're being communicated with by machines that are not with QWERTY keyboards and 
people operating them, I think that eventually gets you into a different sort of space. And I think it's very different from thinking of all this as an information superhighway, for instance, to name another metaphor, or cyberspace, a kind of open kind of space metaphor. It's a different way of thinking about it. And I think it, you know, for me, it's kind of, you know, if you want to kind of, it's Apple, you know, that's one version of it, which is, you know, you get these beautiful devices, but you get the Apple Cloud, and the Apple Cloud is a great thing, but it also, it's like, that's the cloud, and how can you move out of it? So it raises different issues, I think, for me. So network isn't enough, I don't think. Thank you. I, I want to give a voice to somebody who doesn't have a device in their hand. Uh, <laughs> Will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike. Uh, from Made by Many. Um, yeah, I think that, that Charles picked up the fundamental difference, which is that the net is a network of information and the cloud is a set of tools that we can use to manipulate information together collectively. And that brings us straight to the point that um, Echo raised, which is that we no longer own these things ourselves. They're no longer creatures of, of one person, but they're manipulated by many. And that raises the first big problem, which I think many people will feel, which is, which is one of ownership, and that's the one that we're seeing. And, and that's quite a fundamental loss in lots of ways of everything we hold dear about ourselves and our personalities. So the cloud also raises lots of questions about the self and who we are. Uh, and we have to give up a lot in order to receive a lot in that way. So I think it's going to be really difficult for us to deal with you know, on all sorts of levels. Thank you very much. Uh, Peter York, um, that was all lovely, but, <laughs> but. Um, uh, what I wanted to hear from Charlie w was more to make my flesh crawl. <laughs> and so maybe if, if I ask you especially, you can do it, because you said cloud capitalists are organizing the landscape of the future, and cloud capitalists are obviously like really bad men. And uh, in fact, they're like breadheads, or you know, a, you know, a lovely comparison like that. Make our flesh crawl. Tell us how they're organizing the cloudscape of the future. Please do. Oh, well, I mean, I'm going to contradict myself here because actually, um, make, your, make your flesh crawl. Uh, there are people here from Google who can answer for Google, but. Um, I, I think the kind of degree of information and control that Google has, for instance, about what we search for and what, as a result, it might advertise to us, raises troubling questions about how that might be used, for instance, by governments who we don't trust. Um, so, um, or, um, you know, the whole kind of Facebook ownership of lots of our personal data and links I find it very difficult to imagine how you're going to get out of Facebook if you're in Facebook, because to extract yourself, you then have to extract all the links to all the other people that you're linked with. And if that is a really important social utility, then you're going to find yourself very ensnared by that. And I can't, you know, Facebook, people tell me who work there, Facebook is run by people who believe in sharing, and they've got fantastic... But what happens in five or ten years' time when Facebook is owned by other people? who don't have those kind of beliefs and actually are then much more nakedly kind of interested. So the basic issue is this. No one is making any money out of this stuff. 
So they're being provided by huge server farms. I mean, Google is, Apple is, but lots of other people aren't. Um, and so eventually, there's got to be some economic kind of recalibration. People will have to start making money out of the cloud. And to do that, they'll have to control it. And to do that, they'll have to control us. And the irony is, this is a point made by several people, but really well made by James Boyle in the public domain, is that the more that your information, any piece of your information, becomes linked to any other piece of information, to control one piece of information, you have to control all the links. So actually, the irony is that it could license surveillance and kind of interference with us on a level that we haven't conceived of. Because it used to be that you could censor and control things at some point distant from the consumer. Now you'd have to control it in a much more pervasive way. So that is the kind of scary version of it. Paul, you got any other ways to make Deepest Flesh crawl? Um, yes, I think probably. I'd, I'd, I mean, let me just respond to the thought beforehand about the cloud being a set of tools, because I don't think it's a set of tools, actually. I think it's something much more uh, cultural, much more social than that. It's a sort of superstructure, to use, again, an old-fashioned set of terms, that's partly emerged and partly been built on the base of the network. Um, uh, and I think, and I'm, I think the land grab stuff is, is worrying, uh, for sure. And there are all, there's all sorts of power that's springing up. It, it's very much like the building of the railroads, actually. There's all sorts of uh, public goods which are both being constructed and being enclosed. Um, uh, it's a period of enormous invention and, 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 and investment and energy, uh, and it's structuring our future in ways that I don't think we understand. I'm as worried about what happens in this field, um, because I mean something Echo said about you know the, the, the relationship between clouds and factoids <laughs> is really interesting, and it immediately made me think of um, the very deliberate campaign which is being waged at the moment uh, and was, be was begun about a month before Copenhagen mm. around climate science. Um, because actually I think, you know, as a practitioner of this kind of stuff, I can see other people practicing in this field um, in much more unscrupulous ways, I promise you. Um, and as they come to understand, you know, people who have always played the media and politics and various other fields, um, as those interests come to understand this environment and game it, um, I don't think we've quite understood how to inoculate society against the gaming of clouds with factoids. Um, uh, and I think that's very, very interesting and challenging. And it, it, it even extends to, uh, I think, again, Echo was saying, this question of who are you in the cloud? Uh, to what extent is your identity suddenly outside yourself? Which I think is, is, is true of celebrities, but it's, it's also true of pretty much anyone. Um, and it, it's taking us you know, to a space which is almost beyond modernity and the modern understanding of identity. Um, although at the same time, it made me think immediately of ancient Greece. It made me think of uh, somebody like Alcibiades, who I can't remember what he was accused of, having sex with statues or something. And he sort of accepted it. it was that, that was the public perception of him. And, uh, and he got thrown out, and then he got brought back in. But I think, I mean, in a way, the silver lining of this, the way in which um, you know, we're thrown outside of our identities, uh, is that it might help people to start to understand the importance of society again. Um, the inevitability, in a way, of society. Thank you. Steve Lawson. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in the, 
there's, there's, there's sort of two directions to this. There's, there's the, the, um, the stuff I contribute to the cloud and, and the questions of, of ownership and mashability and all those kind of things of, of the things I, I, I put into it. But there's also the, the moment to moment the cloud is, in terms of my relationship with it, is about potential. And that that potential is, is controlled and mitigated by uh, network service providers whether that's mobile network service providers or people providing Wi-Fi, and that, that at the moment, it seems like there is an enormous uh, a credibility gulf between the potential for uh, what can go on within the cloud and the infrastructure for me connecting to it in a consistent and critical way. So that actually, I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm fascinated by, A, the amount of power that, that a shift towards a greater degree of critical information and and, and cultural artifact existing within that, um, that the power that that hands to those who control our connection to it. Um, that, but also that, that the way that that changes our uh, relationship with, with uh, sort of critical hierarchies of data. And that w at the moment we're working with a kind of technical taxonomy to describe that set of relationships rather than a practical vernacular that allows us to kind of talk about what we actually do in relation to it and how that affects us connecting with it on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. Because um, that disconnection could end up being crippling if, if, if you know, that at some point that falls apart and, and we've thrown our lot in with, with uh, you know, uh, d for example, devices that have minimal memory but, but are, all, are always designed to be constantly in connection. That, that connection falls down and suddenly we have nothing. I'm, I'm concerned by that. I'm interested in, in, in your thoughts on that. Anybody? Jump in? Uh, no? Well, I, I think that, yeah, no, that is one of who controls that connection, what you get down it, do they decide when you give a hint that you might be interested in a pizza that they've got the perfect pizza delivery company, it's called Apple Pizza, um, or, or whatever. Those kinds of issues become, I think, very important. I mean, I suppose, I mean, what I'm just trying to do in this and in, in trying to kind of introduce or make more of this metaphor of the cloud is, to m is, is a sort of warning against fighting the last war, really. And the last war might be social media and all Web 2.0. And actually, the important stuff might be all this cloud stuff that people are organizing and creating, which is full of potential, but also these things that we're, we'll find ourselves there and suddenly we won't even have noticed that it's been created, that that's the world that we occupy. Um, and I, I mean, Peter encourages me to kind of try and make his flesh creep. But um, it, the truth is that I think these are all quite ambivalent and difficult questions. I mean, the question of, you know, the, boo the Google book settlement is a really complicated question, it seems to me, about whether this is good, bad, on what terms. And so the question of identity, I mean, actually Paul's comment about ancient Athens I think is probably quite right in a way, that rather than experiencing it as a loss, as William said, you lose your identity. In a sense, it's a sort of different identity that you're maybe gaining, um, but certainly exists out there, and you can sort of see as a, a different reflection on you, but it doesn't mean you lose your identity necessarily. Well, I'm struck just, I mean, yeah. Sarkozy responded to the Google Book Settlement by announcing a huge digitization program for French culture, saying French culture must not be allowed to leave, as if Google making it more available to other people meant that it had left France. So the fact that your identity or whatever you believe in might be available to other people doesn't mean it's left you. It just means it's available in other ways. Okay. Okay. 
part. Sorry, I'm in No, no, go ahead. I'll no, jump no. in afterwards. Um, partly, it's because we are uh, we haven't yet come to a place where we can take a particularly sophisticated view on what the effects of all this are because we're still living in an early phase of something like all. So at the moment, every social networking uh, site, we think about Facebook or whatever, we accept either neutrally or potentially positively. And at some point into the future, some of these things will be seen as evil places, some of them as good places. But we're not quite at that place yet. We are choosing to suspend our disbelief. So equally, back, you know, back to this thing about... Um, our public persona online. You can take a sort of relaxed view about it unless you happen to be John Terry or someone who's, you know, who's, um, who's uh, online or print persona is now probably completely different to how he thinks about himself individually. It's a problem of his own making to some extent. Um, but it just in some ways or other, we'll all find ourselves in a situation where um, we don't own who says what about us. <coughs> and we can be relaxed about it, probably depending on what the other version of ourselves or the other versions of ourselves come to look like. And the interesting thing here is that I think you were gesturing to something to do with that when you talk about kind of online people who, who've learned how to do some of the things you already learned to do and use them for evil. Um, you know, at the moment, there's a sort of interesting interface between um, new media and old media. So old media tends to report new media, sometimes with scepticism, sometimes with sarcasm, but actually is a very useful source of content or gossip or rumour or other things. And in part, I think there's a generational thing going on where actually we haven't yet got to a place where everyone's speaking the same language or where everyone is interrogating information with the same level of acuteness. So you have this kind of uh, disparity that's taking place right now where some things uh, are taken as fact and sometimes by other people the same, the same layers of information are taken simply as rumour or as jokes. It's a very strange situation at the moment. Okay. Quickly, Catherine. Uh, just, yeah, just very quickly on this notion of... Um, of a sort of hyper-awareness of ourselves that, that some of these developments create. And I think that to that, to that hyper-awareness, because sometimes things won't go away, won't disappear, because you're partly defined by others who, who on top of everything, you've, you've, you, know, you haven't necessarily invited in um, quite, quite explicitly. There's two things that are interesting in this. One is that you need to, de you need to develop a hyper-unawareness uh, because otherwise functioning in, in the world becomes all the more difficult. Uh, and I think that you know, this is often one of the paradoxes that, that, that strikes us is that you know, pe some people seem to be supremely unaware of, of who they are in, in, uh, in cyberspace. And in fact, it's very important to some extent that they remain unaware. Um, otherwise, it might, it might become very, very difficult. But I think that the other point I just wanted to pick up on was this notion that this hyper-awareness of ourselves is in part created by a collective gaze. It's in part creating that renewed awareness of the collective, that renewed awareness um, of, of society, which I think is, is really hyper-important um, in hyper-individualistic times, as we like to call them, um, partly because it, it makes us aware of new communities, um, new forms of, of belonging and, and, new, uh, and, and new forms of network, but also because it goes some of the way toward answering what, for me, is the basic question about all this, which is, does it make, does all this make our world more knowable? 
Do we, do we, in terms of this information that is coming to us, in terms of what we know about others, do we feel that we know the world better? Does it help us to make more sense of where we fit, of what our place might be in the world, or actually does it do the opposite of that? And my sense is that it does, it does both, and what we need to be, uh, become better at is determining when it creates a certain kind of knowledge about our place in the world, and when in fact it goes against that and makes us feel terribly insecure about our place in the world. Okay, I w I'm gonna have two, two quick contributions uh, from people, and then we're gonna move to a more democratic form <laughs> of conversation, uh, because I know there's lots of smart people out there who want to talk and talk and talk, and not just listen to the very smart people we've managed to get up on stage. So, Sue, Hi. first of all. Hello. Oh, yeah. somebody else got the mic. <laughs> Hi, my name is Lee Provost from Headshift. Um, there is always a lot of criticism on, uh, critique on cloud capitalism and uh, commercial cloud, but I some, somehow have the feeling that the cloud capitalism has done far more towards preserving heritage and culture than probably most governments on the planet. And because if you think about, for instance, the, the Google uh, Books project, um, let's say that one day they have c just indexed most of the books in this world and they charge people, uh, like, let's say, I want to access that. And they say, okay, you have to pay us 25 pounds per year if you want to access it. So then you can also probably say that the 25 pounds per year I would pay will be far less than all the uh, tax money we would invest in building our own version of the Google Books project like the French government would do. So, yes, yeah, so, so I'm still not completely convinced about the, the, the whole critique on okay. uh, commercial companies that drive this cool. trend. Thank you. Sue, go ahead. Yeah, Sue, uh, Sue Mathias. Sorry, this is just a, a throwing in at the last minute, but I slightly different question, and maybe one for Catherine, or perhaps one for Paul. Um, so where does all this leave all those people around the world who actually have no, either no or very little access at all to the web, to the cloud, and probably over the next 10 years may, you know, that, that position may not change massively for them. Uh, a lot of them are very poor, and a lot of them do not live in the north or the west. And I wonder just exactly how democratic this really is. I just wondered if that was something that, that uh, we should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Why, not, why, not, why not something from each of you to, to finish off? Uh, ju just on that one, um, I mean, it's, it's true that uh, uh, it's a serious minority of people in the world still uh, uh, who, who have access to the internet as it's commonly understood. But the way in which mobile phones are evolving right now, we're just shifting from one order to another in, in mobile phones. And you now have all these mobile phones which have clouds on them, you know, whether it's Google or Facebook or, you know, and many of those are actually, you know, precisely, you know, more captured forms of the internet that you would get on, on, on an ordinary um, uh, internet terminal. So I, I think it's, uh, it, Actually, that transition, and we are going to be in a world where, you know, there are five million 
six million, six, five billion, six billion mobile phones quite soon. Um, uh, that that is going to actually extend the the influence of these things um, uh, tremendously over the next five ten years. Um, uh, I, I think. I mean, I, I I wouldn't actually say that commercial clouds are necessarily a bad thing. I was trying to say that actually, that that. Um, but they're power, um, and you know they they are a public good, uh, and therefore uh, they need to be held accountable. That's that, that's all. It may well be that they could do it much more efficiently, much more effectively, and and, and uh, more uh, greater value uh, than Sarkozy can. Um, then great, but we'll we'll hold them accountable. Okay. Um, I think I think your point is a very good one. You know, the the the, the truth is. You know, forever, really, we've always been presented with new technologies that are supposed to change the world and that are dramatically, in relation to the developing world, supposed to change the fortunes of the developing world. You know, I remember when I was a kid and you'd be sitting in a science class and there'd be a film on and there'd be some new strain of rice or something that was supposed to end poverty and world hunger. Mm. Do you know, all in one go. Um, cloud computing won't change that. That's just the very truth of it. The poor will still be with us. There'll be new forms of... Technology like phones that um, enable more information, but in and of themselves, they won't change things. Um, what I hope, I, I suppose, is that um, all of this introduces more opportunity for situations like you saw in Iran, where actually, genuinely, you got this moment when, um, uh, over the course of the last year, people began begin to tweet after the last elections. And, you know, it doesn't make, it doesn't overturn uh, the government in Iran, but it brings new attention to that situation, and it makes voices that hadn't hitherto, that weren't able to be heard, be heard. And that I think is the is the shift. We're not going to see a dramatic overturning of the economic or, or situation that we we find ourselves in, but hopefully, what we'll be able to hear in some ways, in some small ways, sometimes, are the voices some of those people who find themselves in that situation and hopefully we'll be in a situation where it won't be so easy for us on a moral level or on a social level to ignore those and just go about our own lives. Hopefully we can be better informed by being able to hear some of those other things that are being said. Thank you. Catherine promised me, promises me a very small yeah, point. No, ju uh, just an added point on this notion of access. I mean, I think this is something that, you know, because we, we work all over the world, including in communities um, where access is very far uh, from a given. I think that one of the things that we're particularly interested in is a, is a recommendation and work toward um, developing local, uh, local solutions, develop, uh, developing and supporting networks um, that are essentially locally embedded for local solutions to emerge. And, and I would say that this is, first of all, um, this is long work, it's slow work, um, and it's also not, to begin with, terribly lucrative work, which is precisely why um, it's particularly well carried out by, by organizations that don't necessarily immediately, uh, you know, aren't, aren't uh, immediately interested in, in, in profit, financial or, or otherwise. And then often, then it gets picked up um, by others who can scale up perhaps better. But I think that that local knowledge and that local support is something that is precisely where... Um, you know, non non corporate actors can can possibly make a real difference. Charlie, you stand between these people and your drink and nibbles. Oh, mm -hmm. do I? 
Yeah. Should I not say anything? I'll just, <laughs> just say something quick. quick uh, well, just quickly, uh, I'm not saying that cloud capitalists are necessarily bad. I'm, I'm saying that they are um, the power that needs to be both held to account but also encouraged to invest the dividend of their profit either in social enterprise or in creative connection uh, and um, creative culture. But I'm also just very, very interested that we have um, thought so much about what happens to individuality and the cloud. Um, and it would be completely ridiculous, it seems to me, to think that we were ever in a situation where we owned our own identity or our own individuality or that that was under our control. <laughs> and in a way, um, you know, what this is doing is, I think, part of a story about a much more conditioned notion of individuality and freedom, which is we are essentially made by our relationships. We're not made out of our own self-willed activity. We're made by relationships and connections. And it is, then, the story of an essential connectedness, which is really at the root of what is so powerful about this stuff. And so it is about a sort of the re-emergence of a sort of connected sense of self. That is really powerful and very, very important and should not in any way, it seems to me, be seen as a loss. Rather, rather a sort of possibility and a triumph that you put behind yourself a sort of completely outmoded, atomistic, individualistic sense of what identity is, Bravo. which is a myth. Bravo. <laughs> 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 right, thank you very much. Um, round of applause, first of all, for Echo Eschen, Paul Hilda, <laughs> Catherine Fieschi, and Charlie Ledbetter. Thank you very much indeed.